the meat of the podcast. <laughs> have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It feels like I won't ever make it home. Traffic's backed up, I got to get off of this road. Flipped on the gas, I swear to God, I'm in my zone. This is She's in Russia. I'm Smith, and I'm in Brooklyn. And I'm Lily, and I'm in St. Petersburg. So, what's today's episode about, Lily? Today's episode is devoted to a short story called The House Behind the Vacant Lot, and the story was originally written in Russian by Olga Anoiko and was translated into English by Isaac Stackhouse Wheeler. I had the honor of interviewing the author, Olga. We did an interview in Russian, and then I translated it, so you're gonna, we're going to listen to that interview now in English re-recorded with Smith playing Olga and me playing myself. And then Isaac, the translator of the story, is going to do a reading of it. And you might recognize Isaac from an episode we did on translation. So the original story written in Russian was published in 2007, and the translated version by Isaac will be published tomorrow, March 21st, in Event Horizon, which is a quarterly online literary and graphic arts periodical that's available as a free PDF download and as a print edition, so go check them out. They dub themselves as a friendly venue for new and emerging artists and always welcome submissions in anything from poetry, fiction, graphic arts, photography, craft showcase and pictorial or story art such as comics manga and graphic novels so if you are a creator of any of those things feel free to submit your work they also accept non-fiction especially but not limited to arts reportage art history and opinion and you can find them at eventhorizonmagazine.com so without further ado let's listen to the interview lily did with olga если вы можете рассказать про ваш процесс в общем, то есть как это происходит, это типа ежедневный. I was hoping you could talk about your process in general, how it happens. Is it like you write every day, or does it happen at some specific time? And it would also be cool if you could talk about your process in reference to this specific story, the house behind the vacant lot. Его написали давно, да? But I understand you wrote it a long time ago. Да, это очень старый рассказ. Я написала его когда Yes, it's a really old story. I wrote it when I was 19 years old and right now I'm 33. But looking back, I can say that one of my two favorite narrative methods were present in this story. One of the methods is right in the first lines of a text. You lead the reader into a very different, very intensely different world that might seem absolutely unbelievable and impossible. But in the vacant lot, it's not quite like that. This story starts with the description of relatively mundane, everyday things and only later something unbelievable and extraordinary opens up начинались когда-то тексты которые я писала и я до сих пор использую эти два метода в основном that's how i started then that's how the text i wrote back then started and i still mostly use those two methods ну я не поняла какой второй метод i didn't understand what what was the second method 
The second one is to start with something really understandable, very real, usual, that doesn't draw any attention. Okay, and you use both of those to this day. Yep, those are my two favorite methods. No, okay, when I asked about process, I meant more like everyday moments. As in, if you have some kind of strict routine, like you only write in the mornings, for example. So the question is, do you have a routine now? And did you have one then when you wrote the story? And has it changed over the past 10 or so years? Yes, more than 10 years have gone by, but I've always written at night or late evening. So when I graduated from Music Institute and started working an office job, I had fewer chances to write. Ideally, I'd like to be able to write every day, but unfortunately it doesn't work out that way. Usually I manage a few days a week. And still at night? Yes. And then I have to wake up early in the morning. So how does that work? You you get an idea and start writing a story or a novel in, until it's finished? Or do you ever stop something in the middle of the process? Or have several projects happening at the same time? There was a time when I had a lot of unfinished texts and I continued whatever texts I liked most that day, but then it worked out that every time I went to work on something, I had only one text and I sit down and try to write at least a small chunk of text every day. Otherwise, it's impossible to finish. You know, I'm a regular office employee and I'm not able to sit down and write for the whole day from morning to night. I end up having to cut out small chunks of time to write small chunks of text. Okay, I think we'll come back to the text a bit later, but let's talk about your office work. I read on your site that you work in the IT sphere, that's correct? Yeah, although I'm a musician by education, I work in the IT sphere. I work for the company Yandex. Ah, okay. So I'd like to hear more details, if you're okay with that. What kind of musician are you? And I'm interested in how you transitioned from music into IT and what exactly you do at Yandex. Ну, как сказать... Well, how can I put it? When I started studying music, I thought it was a really elevated, romantic profession to be a music teacher. By education, I'm not a performer. I'm a musicologist, a theorist, a teacher of solfeggio, music history, and everything else that's connected with theory. But when I finished Music Institute, it was a totally different time. The last echoes of the Soviet Union were melting, and it became clear that teachers won't be able to feed themselves. You need to do some other kind of work. So I always liked computers. I was in love with computers. And with friends' help, I got a job part-time at the company Yandex. Then I got a promotion. Yandexians do search like Google. It's Google's competitor in Russia. And my job is to essentially, among a lot of other people, to try to improve our search. So you've been working at Yandex for a while then? 11 years. At work, I encountered mystical phenomena, and I have a big novel, fantasy, about magical Yandexians from a parallel world. 
Basically, at work, these moments occurred when I saw queries from users submitted to our search that looked really strange, as though they were submitted not from this world. That's how I came up with the idea that the internet is shared between several parallel worlds, and something needs to be done about that because users can be in danger. Then out of that came a long, really complex, big novel that's called The Sea of Names. That's really, really interesting. I will definitely read it. It's long. I'll try. Well, I'm, I'm a slow reader in Russian, but the topic sounds really interesting. Okay. Well, so now I understand a bit about what you do at Yandex. So you've been working there a while and you plan to continue working there. You, you enjoy it there? Yes, yes, it's wonderful work. I'm just thinking how to formulate this question. Do you consider yourself a writer? I don't, I don't know exactly what I mean by that. I guess I just mean when you're at a party or something and someone asks you what you do, do you say, I'm a writer? No, I prefer to say that I'm an employee at Yandex because to say I do these things for Yandex, improve its search a little bit, and in doing that benefit millions of users, that's a lot easier to explain than to explain that, yeah, I write books, I publish them, not at my own expense. Well, because how can I put it? A lot of people write. And then you have to prove that you're a real writer and that's really awkward and I don't want to do that. Understood. Yeah, I totally get that. Another question about your work, your texts. When you start writing, do you already know it's going to be a novel or a short story? Is that always clear at the very beginning or, or even before you start? Specifically the size of what it's going to be, yes, I can predict pretty accurately. But when I start writing, I far from know all the plot twists that will happen. They more often than not come to me later. Some come to me when half the text is already written and it really surprises you because you absolutely didn't expect that that story would include that kind of twist. And is there an example of that process in the house behind the vacant lot? In that story, no. That story was made up all at once because it's not long. There's no space for sharp, unexpected twists. Okay, can you talk a bit about... Well, I don't want you to explain the story, of course, or even the idea behind it, but I'm interested in... Where did it come from? Yes, yes, exactly. What you were thinking about at the time. Yes, I was still studying at Music Institute and we had a philosophy course. I think the same course exists in all institutes. We studied the history of philosophy and I learned that in Japan there was a kind of religious training that considered that the afterlife can be not only something the human soul experiences, but entire countries can experience it. An entire country, like a single being, like some being of a higher order, can experience the afterlife. And, as it happened, that was at a time when the living memory of the Soviet Union was departing. And, of course, I immediately thought about the fact that the Soviet Union, it had died and entered the afterlife, like a dead person might. I'm wondering if you would talk a bit about your different names. You have several nicknames and one pseudonym. Do you, do you still currently go by the nickname 
Аренга? Да, да, Ауренга. What, is, what does that mean? Это ничего не значит, кроме меня самой. It doesn't mean anything except me, myself. All my nicknames were like that. Under that name, I write a personal blog and write some fan fiction. Just for the entertainment of my friends. They're not serious texts. Okay, and these names, you made them up yourself? No one named you them? No, I made them up. They're my names. Ah, okay. And what about the pseudonym Oleg Seryogin? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just interested in why. Of course, you don't have to answer this question, that's fine. But I'm just personally curious where the pseudonym came from and why you picked a male name in particular. Well, it's a really... How can I put it? It's a fairly silly Russian tradition that if there's a lot of battles and adventures, then it's considered that the author should have a male name. Otherwise, no one will read that sort of book. Everyone expects that if the author has a female name, then the book will certainly be about love, and everyone will be disappointed. Women buy the book expecting to read a text about love, and there are adventures, and men won't buy the book at all. But that's sort of a prevention, something like a superstition, because, of course, everything doesn't actually work that way. But that kind of superstition exists, and many people believe in it. Is that true specifically for the fantasy genre, or in general? Mostly in battle fantasy, like Star Wars, in all its various forms. I don't mean fan fiction about Star Wars, I mean battles in space. And all the possible adventures surrounding that. And you, okay, a bit more about genre. Would you say that you write in one genre, or is that thought not really important to you? Yes. I can say that I always write fantasy, but it's fantasy in very different settings. It can be fantasy in space, it can be classical fantasy in the Middle Ages, or it can be urban fantasy in the contemporary world. Or it can be, how can I put it? There's the term magical realism. There can be such a variety of fantasy types. Critics, researchers consider them all different genres. But to me, it seems like it's all fantasy, just in different settings. Okay, I think that's it. I don't know, if there's something else you'd like to say specifically about the story or in general, then please. Oi, I'm afraid I can't give any great wisdom. No, I just, I just mean, for example... I didn't ask you really any questions that were specifically about the story because... Well, it's really interesting, and I don't want any of my questions to demand any kind of explanation, which is why I didn't ask those kinds of questions. But I just wanted to ask about the process, and if you wanted to say anything more about the process, I just wanted to give you that opportunity. Well, how can I put it? I've always tried to write as best as I can, and many years have passed, and now I can a lot better. Unfortunately, given there's only one translation, I have nothing to prove that, but I hope that sometime I can prove that. <laughs> well, I also hope so. I really hope more of your stories will be translated soon. But 
congratulations on your first story translated into English. And thank you so much for the time. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Isaac Stackhouse Wheeler is going to read his translation of The House Behind the Vacant Lot. Behind the Vacant Lot by Olga Anoiko. Translated from the Russian by Isaac Stackhouse Wheeler. That house had always been there, as far as the white-walled high-rises of the residential district could remember, just as a hill always rises or a ravine always runs. It seemed that the innumerable trains of years had been laid to rest behind the hard, red, vacant lot. At one time, the house's contemporaries had stood darkly in the high-rise's place, but the loamy, mud-yellow waves of time had already swept them up and carried them away. They had disappeared, and three-story red-brick buildings had been put up by city workers. The last of them, now its great-grandchildren's neighbor, seemed to be part of some village that had rotted away long ago. It had turned brown and settled as the capricious wind carried dust onto its gabled tin roof, over the years, that dust had turned to dirt, on which green moss managed to subsist. The house was separated from the new buildings by a broad, lifeless space, marked off by an old, graying fence, made from wire like the kind used in uncomfortable bunks at children's camps and rest homes. Sometime, who knows when, it had been thrown up around the vacant lot, grand, flat, and covered with gravel. 
It seemed to be meant for a soccer field or a giant playground. The new arrivals broke the fence from their side and built garages, but preferred to use the real playground for their prefabs. It was closer, for one thing. A surviving stretch of fence stood in front of the lonely house like barbed wire. Further on, the eye moved over a half-dead field, little different from the vacant lot, and met a patch of gray suburban woods, its edge envying the green exuberance that surrounded the ramshackle house. Maples and ashes, older than its red brick, towered there, almost twice as high as its squat walls. Tall acacia clumps reached the roof, and in the spring they bloomed in white and yellow banks. In the winter, through the gaps between the clouds of snow that clung to the black branches, one could see the whole house, worn and dilapidated, not unsettling in the least. But in summer, covered almost entirely by impetuous, dingy green, through which dark red walls and colorless windows peeked, the house was scary. Everyone was inclined to populate it with his preferred apparitions. The house behind the vacant lot was home to junkies, bums, Satanists, and she-goblins. They said that in one of the rooms on the second floor, full of ancient trash and rot, there was a pentagram drawn in blood on the concrete floor, and in its center a cat skeleton with mutilated paws and its spinal column ripped out. Since the skeleton wasn't human, the story took on a certain degree of credibility. The ringleader of the local delinquents bragged that he had gone into the house behind the vacant lot and seen traces of some awful ceremony. He hadn't done anything of the sort, of course. What people called the little DTs once appeared in the house, the spirits of delirium tremens, which led to the premature death of the owners and doomed them to endless sorrow. They sat on the floor like poor drunkards, reduced to a tenth of their normal size, dressed in their funeral clothes. Some of the spirits were properly dressed, in white slippers and suits of sorts. Others, taking tender care of the tramps, made do with cellophane. There were even littler DTs among them. Random passers-by who tripped off the narrator's tongue entered the house and found the little DTs, slowly swaying from side to side, whimpering quietly synchronically scratching at the floor with their little hands, persuading them to have done with that wrongdoer for good. The story of the little DTs went especially well with a glass of vodka and a snack. But the saddest thought of all was the most boring one, that the house behind the vacant lot was home to lonely, forgotten old men, that they listened to a sickly radio set permanently tuned to a single channel and slobber on stone-hard biscuits, while those who can still see reread ancient newspapers from 50 years ago. The housing department is waiting for them to die, since that will be simpler, quieter, and cheaper than moving them out of that long-condemned house and finding somewhere else to put them. Certainly anyone could tell that the glass in the little windows was intact. If you look too long and too narrowly, it seemed that behind them was not emptiness and not walls covered in peeling paper, but someone's old furniture, and the whitish outline of cheap ceiling lights. To be honest, nobody remembered if the ancient hinged panes in the windows were ever open, whether lights ever came on in the windows of the house behind the vacant lot, but nobody would swear that it hadn't happened either. No one looked out of the windows. There wasn't even a path to the nearby bus stop. No one noticed a sign on it with a name or a number. The house was set apart from all lanes, thoroughfares, streets, and dead ends. It was probably not fear that stopped them, though, but gray laziness. It was April, 
March had turned out to be warm. Basically, the torpid spring had dragged on since the end of January, as often happens in big cities. Almost all the snow was gone. The asphalt had had time to dry out and shine. Grass grew up through the dirt where nobody had planted it, and everything smelled damp and fresh, the ineradicable smell of the awakening earth. The bus sighed and drove away, and the only person to get off stayed on the sidewalk. Bus shelters had yet to arrive in this neighborhood. There was just a little yellow flag that waved on a lamppost. The bus stopped just as one would expect. It quickly opened and shut its doors, then rolled on. Why this stop was established, far from the apartment buildings and directly opposite the house behind the vacant lot, remained a secret. The passenger stood for a while near the lamppost, trying to perform the admittedly impossible feat of examining the house from every direction while standing in one place, then set off towards it uncertainly. He was a young man, stooped and fair-haired, with narrow shoulders and a slight puffiness about the face, the kind that expresses not violent love of life, but long concentrated periods of sitting within four walls. His eyes, if they had been hotter, not in color, but in the electrical dance of energy in his pupils, would have been bright, but as it was, they were merely pale. He was looking for a computer club that had put a job listing in the local paper. He'd called the number. The person on the other end, without even seeing him, on the force of one mispronounced syllable, had summarily and authoritatively proclaimed this job seeker a dumbass, but this establishment was crummy and out of the way. In fact, the club was about 300 yards from where the young man was now standing, in a squat structure tucked inside a ring of 18-story apartment buildings, along with a pharmacy, a pet store, and a little office supply stall. The tall buildings sheltered it, though. And, run down as it was, the house behind the vacant lot might very easily be the club. The young man set off, wading through the mud in his boots. Then the mud gave way to tiny blades of tender grass and the remnants of the asphalt path. Gusts of wet, sweet spring wind blew in. Cars backfired behind him, so a frightful silence did not prevail everywhere. The house got closer. It was bigger than it looked from far away. It was pleasant to look at the sturdy tree trunks, and the youth even touched one of them, growing quite close to the path, with his soft palm. He couldn't see a sign on the house. They probably hadn't managed to order it yet, so he decided to try both entrances. The club was probably in the basement. For some reason, he didn't pick the entrance that was right next to him, but went for the other one, by a hedge and the legs of a rotted bench. Perhaps it was the finer, more welcoming door that made the choice for him. He paused at that door. It was only then that the silence descended. Perhaps he had stepped into it. The sounds of the nearby road didn't reach this spot. With surprise and a certain squeamishness, he noticed that everything had become somewhat sticky. The door handle, the old asphalt under his feet, his eyelashes, even his thoughts, which tumbled more slowly and reluctantly than usual. All the same, he opened the door. He had a tug on it, it was jammed, and went in. There was no club here, not even a hint of one, but he knew for sure that he had come to seek and had already found. What he was supposed to find in that unfamiliar house was unknown, and a vague fear arose in him, but now his feelings were too slow, and the fear didn't have time to become a decision. His last thought said that he should leave the door open, 
since the light bulbs in the entryway were, of course, broken. He caught it and pushed, but it obdurately resisted. It wasn't some otherworldly force pushing back, just the old rusty hinges. He resigned himself. The door closed. He stood on the tiny patch of floor between the door and the short stairway to the first floor. It was quiet in the house. Not deathly quiet, but rather the quiet you feel when everyone has gone to bed. The ears don't catch the soundless breathing behind a thick wall, but a sixth sense, responding to who knows what. Living bodies, the shadows of other people's dreams, and the thrumming of a pulse that says there are people here for sure. It was dark in the basement, and dank, but there was no doubt about it. Someone lived there. He looked around at the scuffed white-green walls, leaned his arm against the railing, painted a reddish color long ago. He understood that he was going to go up. Where was there to go up to in a three-story house? It's not as if there was going to be an observation platform. While that thought emerged and passed between his ears, a few steps managed to pass under his feet. Footsteps were audible. He still hadn't worked out whether he should give a start or catch his breath when a fat girl of about four years old trundled down from the second floor in just her underwear. Her tight black braids stuck out in all directions, shining as though they were covered in oil. The toddler was holding a big blow-up ball as round as her little belly. She turned her serious gaze on him, then set off toward the door. Hey, what are you doing walking around naked? He called out involuntarily. You'll catch cold. What? The little girl said in a bass voice. Hum. Walk for yourself. For some reason, he didn't follow her onto the street, but ran to the landing and looked out the dusty, worn, and smeared window. The vacant lot wasn't there. Nor was April. Behind the dirty glass shone a boisterous July, rows of mothers sitting on benches, calling out to their young, who flew from one end of the little courtyard to the other, framed by crisp, cooling shrubberies. The picture drew him in. Its accuracy, its reality a thousand times larger than the reality of the empty lot and the garages, pierced him, and the sparks of the summer sun driving through the dim glass made him blink furiously. I know who, said a bass voice behind him. Your Uncle Andre from Apartment 6, the computer scientist. He turned around with a start. The same girl stood behind him, only without the ball now for some reason looked at him, pouting. Uh-huh, he said, for some reason. He really was Andre, and he had a degree in computer science, though he didn't live in any apartment six, and certainly not here. After a second, he began to doubt that. After two, he stopped. Andre stood a little longer by the window, looking over the courtyard. His surprise, weak as it was, dimmed. He knew more and more clearly that this unthinkable event was the most natural thing that could happen here today. There was no fear at all. An abandoned, condemned house would have frightened him more than this. For that matter, so would the notorious club where he would have had to get a job. Then he thought that it was time to leave. And a strong feeling, the strongest feeling he had ever known, the urge to stay here, wrenched him so that he sank his fingers into the peeling white windowsill, as if someone's gloomy will were dragging him back by force.
Then he knew that he could decide. What was in front of him was not a tantalizing mirage, or an unlikely gift, but merely that which is. The awful right to choose belonged to him just as much as his right to breathe. And his unwillingness instantly materialized all three floors of the house behind the vacant lot, and several streets around it, full of greenery, and he already knew that the door leading out was located in the glass storefront around the corner. He needed to go there, he needed to grab the handle, and, despairingly, deliriously, wish to return. He went outside. In the store, he bought some bread, carrots, sausage, and bottled water, paid in some somnambulant state, without even realizing what he was paying with or how much, and went back to the house. He found the keys to the apartment in his pants pocket. Still half asleep, Andre walked around the apartment. Two rooms, a kitchen. He felt the well-worn furniture. Its appearance brought someone else's memories to life. His memories, about how he had bought it. How he had slept on the sofa bed. How he had burnt the table with a cigarette. So it would seem that algebraic formulae, forgotten forever, can come back to life. All you have to do is open a crumbling yellow textbook. The voice of the math teacher, the bleak linoleum smell of the mop, and the stupid, flat face of the kid at the next desk return along with them. He lived a few days. Andre thought about it in a way people rarely do. Not, I lived for a few days in such and such a place, or that's how I was living back then, but just, I lived. Maybe that's how sick people say it, or soldiers. As though with tremendous effort, he wormed his way through space and time, walked along the edge of reality and dream. In his dreams he shopped, read, tidied up, cooked simple bachelor fare, at peace and satisfied with everything. With every new awakening, his unwillingness to return grew more and more acute, but he still managed to understand, more likely out of habit than any real desire to. Then his vacation was over, and his unwillingness gave birth to an institute where he worked. The door turned up there, at the other end of the little town, one with the door to the utility room, where they kept an old paint-stained bucket and some junk, and he only had to wish. Once he ran into a girl wearing a tight-fitting dress and white slippers on the stairs. Her black braids shone just like those of the fat little girl he met on the stairs in the first minute of his life. But the kid couldn't possibly have grown up in the month that had passed, so it was probably Yulia's niece or cousin. He wanted to ask Yulia, but he kept forgetting. They held hands and sat on the windowsill. They went to the park and the Palace of Culture. It turned out that for one reason or another, she'd felt the urge to visit a relative, and had escaped from Ijevs to the suburbs of Moscow. They decided it was fate. Now he was married. Through the lines of his dissertation, he saw an apartment with a beautiful woman walking around it. In the apartment was the affectionate smell of fresh food and a clean body. Now the door was in the city of Yalta, in one of the gloomy cafes far from the sea. Soon afterwards, they went on a trip to Sochi. The dream stretched on, but now he woke up less and less often. He had a lot to do. Yulio was sick, he was sick himself, and in the apartment grumbling 
a first cousin once removed, was in charge of the housekeeping. He abandoned his dissertation for no reason at all and threw together an article on some other topic unrelated to his work. A lot of people praised the article, and they gave him a prize, which he blew on a present for his wife. That was the first time in his life he'd been in a jewelry store. It turned out it wasn't that bad. He used his next prize to buy a better computer. You used to have a desktop, said a person who was almost a stranger, and Andre scoffed at the idea. His computer was huge, as big as a refrigerator, and it was always a pleasant surprise how powerful it was. He was connected to the net. There were Bulgarian pages there, Polish ones, German, and tons of others, but not a single one in English. Through a dedicated line for two rubles and fifty kopecks a month, fair and square. The awareness that he meant something in this world chased the expression of vapid passivity off his face and the dry flame characteristic of real men appeared in his eyes. He started to exercise, and his wife proudly took his arm when they walked in the park with their stroller. He didn't watch television, but Yulia would turn on the radio when she was busying herself around the apartment. He usually didn't hear it. That was one of the eccentricities of the dream. There were some things that he perceived very clearly, as though they were perfectly real, Others simply didn't exist for him for the time being, like the radio or party meetings. But gradually, as he soaked in that everyday life, he caught more and more of it. The radio talked about prospecting for new mineral deposits, the shock work of the collective farmers, the building of Mir II, and an event you look for on the horizon, like the arrival of communism, as sweet as a wedding you've waited your whole life for, a mission to Mars. The next time he woke up, Andrei understood that he was living in the Soviet Union. He jumped up from the chair, struck at last as if by something not of the waking world. His wife had gone to the store. His mother-in-law and grandson lived in the country. He was home alone. He walked around the apartment from one end to the other, trembling slightly. First it seemed that the outlines of the furniture and the walls were blurring and melting, laying bare a colorless nothingness, through which peaked a dense brick wall and darkness. Then suddenly his surroundings became such granite truth that he himself was reduced to an apparition. There was something unreal here. Stores without shortages, rude punks and long lines. The general secretary's unfamiliar name, Mir Two. The already familiar European cleanliness of the streets and the uncompromising Environmental Protection Committee. The net and his tremendously powerful computer. This was too good for reality, even an alternate one. He walked over to the locked bookcase where he kept restricted access literature. He had a few such books. The Bible, the Tao Te Ching, Andreev's The Rose of the World, a complete history of religion in four luxurious volumes, and a collected edition of Solzhenitsyn that he'd gotten bored with partway through. He wasn't like his buddy Nikolai, who, according to rumors, had collected almost everything that the censorship service had released, exclusively for psychologically healthy citizens who had reached the age of legal majority, including the story of O and texts on black magic. Andre stood in front of the open bookcase, without picking up a single book, and thought that he was, for the first time in his life, hallucinating. He heard voices, just as he had read about somewhere or other. He was hearing one voice for the first time. 
It was confused and somewhat frightened, and resembled his own, but was still someone else's. Others, or just one, changing each time. They were strange, calm and deliberate, and spoke half to themselves. "'What is this? What is it?' asked the nervous voice. "'In the vortex of probabilistic universes, there is a place where dead countries find peace,' they answered meditatively. "'But there never was any such country,' the nervous voice cried. "'It was a lovely fiction. It was the ghost of someone's unfinished dream.' And there is no peace here, it added quietly. The people here are writing books, digging for minerals, going to space. Maybe peace has different faces, too. The interlocutor shrugged invisible shoulders and moved away. Come on, what is this? Maybe a place created for you. The voice was not answering, just offering its own version. Created by your own dreams and wishes or by somebody's ineffably wise will. I never dreamed about this. I wanted to win a lot of money, or get an apartment, land a job at a big company. I never dreamed about an ideal Soviet Union that never existed. You went into a condemned house, said a new voice, metallic and mocking. For an instant, it seemed to Andre that it was a woman. A beam or a brick fell on your head. Think back. Did you see a long white hallway and, you know, a light at the end? I'm not dead. There's no such thing as death, said the first voice, instructively, returning abruptly to the conversation. When André closed the bookcase, a phrase that the voices had never said fluttered out of it like a moth. Everything good that people create repeats itself in the world beyond, and that is heaven. But I didn't die, he said out loud, leaning his forehead against the veneered surface of the little door. His hands turned the key mechanically. I didn't die. And he dully, helplessly repeated the words of the perturbed voice. What is this? And it happened. Once he wished to return, wished acutely and furiously, and the door once again turned out to be the door of his house. He stepped towards it. The sky opened over his head, as dark as only storm clouds can be, but still pure, cloudless. It was just a different shade, efflorescent as in spring. Spring was beginning here, just as it was then when he left, but it was the spring of another year. The house behind the vacant lot was gone. There didn't turn out to be anything out of the ordinary in it. People in bulldozers went up to it demolished the house and built another one in its place, much more comfortable, with satellite dishes and little thin trees planted around it. The earth under his feet was paved with new asphalt. A little to the side, orphaned trees gathered dust in big-bellied pots, and a concrete wall rose up. Two people approached him from that direction, a bodyguard and a woman, dressed elegantly and unnaturally, like a model who had just stepped off the runway. The woman was being pulled along by two monstrous mastiffs, whose leads she clutched jerkily in her little hands with their long acrylic nails. The nails were a dirty red color, like the dog's tongues. She walked by, looking at him like people look at a column or a bench, and disappeared into the entryway, jerking the loudly sniffing dogs behind her. Andre no longer heard the voice of the bodyguard. 
He recognized her face. Beautiful, dark, golden, framed by shining black hair. The face of his wife. The wish to return made everything go dark. His ears began to ring, and the white, unfamiliar walls along the fence turned into a doctor's white mask, and above it flashed attentive sky-blue eyes, and the sun, the sun in the window of the intensive care unit, bringing tears to his eyes. Close the curtain, Andre heard, and the eyes disappeared. The doctor turned away. No, no, he whispered weakly, soundlessly. Don't. And then, wallowing in the sun, he heard snatches of hushed conversation on the other side of the door. Yulia twittered unintelligibly through her tears. The doctor's voices were lower, slower, and he could make out some words. A prominent scientist, of course, overwork, an early heart attack. Happens all the time these days. He fell asleep, smiling. The door still existed, but now it was the door of an equipment locker on a lunar station. It didn't worry him that the exit was unreachable, though. He lived in the house behind the vacant lot now. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Telegram, Twitter, and Arena at She's in Russia. If you have any questions about Russia, give us a call at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six or on Skype and leave a message. You can find us on Skype at She's in Russia. Also, subscribe to our monthly image-based newsletter at she'sinrussia.com. And lastly, be sure to check out Event Horizon at eventhorizonmagazine.com. You can read the house behind the vacant lot starting on March 21st. See you next week. Go, go, go.